The reading for the day is the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God, because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Anosimus, who, Father, I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he, was wronged, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your, your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epiphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are in our second week of the series, Brief, where while we're online, we're actually doing this deep dive into the shortest books of the Bible, taking one Bible book every week, reading it in its entirety together, and going deep on what it means. Today we have the third shortest book of the Bible. Last week we combined Second uh, John and Third John, and now we have read all together all of Philemon. It is this long. If you'd like to go back and reread it, um, I encourage you to do so. If you've got 
a hard copy of the Bible accessible to you, really encourage you to grab it. We're going to talk about some specific word choices that the author made, and uh, it can be really helpful, especially if you're open to writing in that Bible, so that you can remember it and lock it in um, to both your brain through that kinetic act in your body of writing down, and also into your Bible, so that um, you have those notes anytime you might want to revisit this, or the next person who picks up your Bible can see what you've learned. Um, Philemon, or Philemon, as uh, some people like to, to say, is a, like I said, the third shortest book of the Bible. And, uh, and it's one that talks about slavery. So it's one that has a really complicated history in Christianity because people have used it for wildly different ends. I want to give you a little bit of a cast of characters because there are a lot of people in this story. Philemon is our main dude. He's the one receiving the letter. He's a wealthy Christian, probably a Roman citizen, and we know that he owns slaves, which would have been a really common thing for very wealthy, very affluent, established Romans to do. It was basically how their economy was built. The United States uh, didn't originate that idea. Slavery was a little bit different in this context, uh, I want to make no bones about it. It was still slavery. I think there are some people who want to split hairs about that and say like, oh, well, slavery in the Bible was different, so it's fine. Um, this was not fine. But instead of being like chattel slavery in the United States or the British Empire, this was um, sort of indentured servitude where someone would get in an amount of debt that they couldn't pay off. And so they would basically sell themselves into labor um, and try and pay off their debt that way. It was a little bit different from slavery as we conceptualize it, given our history, because it wasn't generational. You could uh, earn money and buy your way out of it, or other people could buy your freedom for you. Or if uh, the person to whom you were enslaved died, you would be set free. But it was still slavery. So, you know, let's call it what it is. Onesimus was enslaved to Philemon. So Philemon um, owned Onesimus. And, um, and then we have the writer of the letter, Paul. So this is our dude, Paul. Paul wrote a lot. Um, there's a lot of debate about which letters of the Bible Paul wrote. This is one of the most commonly accepted, like undisputed, Paul wrote this letter. So we've got Paul writing to Philemon about Onesimus. And how did this kind of come about? From the text, we can gather some clues. Um, Paul is writing from prison. Now, there are some people who say that he was writing from Ephesus. Some people say he was writing from Rome. Some people say he was writing from Caesarea. The point is, dude was in prison a lot. And uh, we don't really know which prison he was in at the time, but he was incarcerated. So Paul's in prison. Meanwhile, Philemon is running a house church in Colossae. Colossae is the town associated with the letter to the Colossians. So in Colossae, Philemon has this house church that he is running probably after having met Paul and converted to Christianity. So Paul meets this big wig, uh, really wealthy, well-to-do, probably Roman citizen guy named Philemon, who I'm just going to call Phil for purposes. Um, so 
Paul and Phil hang out, Phil's like, Jesus sounds rad. Like, I'm on board. I'm going to reorient my whole life towards this. I'm going to start a house church. It's going to meet in my home because I've got the resources. And so then Phil starts working with with a couple of other people that we hear mentioned in this letter. Um, Apthea, who is probably a woman leader in that church, and Archippus, Archippus, uh, who's another leader in that church. And so the three of them are leading this church out of Phil's house. And they have this long-standing relationship with Paul, who probably mentored them. Meanwhile, Phil's got slaves, and one of them is named Onesimus. You'll hear some plays on Onesimus's name. It means useful or beneficial. And Onesimus somehow gets in some conflict with Phil. We don't know what that is. For a long time, there was sort of an interpretation that really wasn't founded on anything, that Onesimus had stolen money or wronged Phil in some way. What we do know is that because of some conflict between them, Onesimus fled. Again, older interpretations, uh, kind of relying on our understanding of Roman law, were kind of like, oh, Onesimus must have, been, must have fled, must have just been committed to living kind of on the run for the rest of his life and happened to run into Paul. But newer understandings of Roman law uh, actually have led scholars to believe that, no, really what happened was Roman law said that if there was a conflict between an enslaved person and the person who owned them, they could... The slave could find a third party to kind of help negotiate that dispute. And so what scholars think now is that Onesimus sought out Paul, who he knew was a mentor of Phil's, and said, hey, can you help me out? Can you argue on my behalf and help me um, resolve this conflict with my master? So we've got Phil running the house church, Onesimus, who fled and was like, I'm not sticking around for this. I need an advocate. Paul, who is incarcerated, who receives Onesimus. And when Onesimus finds Paul, they start working together. We don't really know what that means, but we know that Onesimus would have uh, been received by Paul in the jail. And so Onesimus would have had some freedoms to kind of do some of the things that Paul needed. And so they become really close. They start collaborating and working together as co-workers in the kingdom, which is um, a, a phrase, a kind of image that Paul draws on to talk to Phil about their relationship. We're co-workers. We're collaborators. I'm working with, with Onesimus now. And the goal of this letter is that Paul is writing to Phil saying, hey, I know Onesimus is enslaved to you. I want you to, I'm sending him home to you with this letter that is asking you to not only free him from that slavery, but to receive him as a brother, as family, as an equal with rights in your household, which is like a pretty big swing. And one of the things that we should bear in mind during this letter is that uh, Phil is probably way more resourced than Paul and There's a lot on the line here. Paul doesn't want to lose that relationship. But he's willing to put that on the line because Paul's understanding of the gospel is one of solidarity. Paul doesn't think that slavery has any place in a Christian household. We'll get into why he's not 
trying to topple the entire system, why he's going at this in an individual level after we kind of go through the letter. But one of the things that's notable here is that this is the only undisputed Pauline letter that doesn't mention the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I think that that's because when Paul is writing these letters and he's kind of going through like, remember the gospel, remember that Jesus died, remember that Jesus rose, he's, he's always laying out the primer because there might be people in the church or people receiving the letter who haven't really heard the gospel before or still need to get the basics. I think that what Paul is doing here is he's understanding like this church has it down. This church has the basics. They know the ideas. Now they need to act on it. This letter is a call to action. This letter is saying if you are true believers, then you need to act in solidarity and stop this nonsense immediately and free this man. And so this is a call to action from Paul to Philemon saying, step up and follow Jesus, not just in word, but in deed. So we're just going to go through. We're going to go through this letter right now, the Jonah P. Overton uh, paraphrase slash interpretation. So it starts out, greetings. Hey, it's Paul. It's your boy, Paul, um, from jail again. <laughs> it's me and uh, me, me, me and Timothy. Uh, and I'm writing to you, Phil, my coworker, my dude, my partner in crime, Say what up to Fia and Archippus, who's also in on this with us. You know what? Why don't you just share this letter with the whole church? May grace and peace from God be with you. Ah, gosh. I just, every time I think about you, every time I pray for you, which is often, I thank God for you because you're doing such good work. I, I know that you are loving and faithful and that you're doing so much for God's people. And I just, I'm really, really excited for that. I want you to know that I pray that your sharing in the gospel, your communing in the gospel, your collaborating in the faith, I want that to become effective. I want that to be made true. I want that to come into being because you finally understand all the good that God has in store for us. I get really excited about your love because you know what? I know that God's people are just so blessed by who you are. Because of that, I feel, I feel really confident that like I've got to just tell you to step up and do the right thing here, Phil. I mean, I, I know that I could just tell you to do it because I'm your mentor, you trust me, and I have authority in your life to just tell you what you have to do. But I'm going to try and appeal to you through love. I want you to understand why I'm asking you to do the thing that you're trying to do. And I want you to do it willingly. I want you to submit to the gospel and do the thing that Jesus is calling you to do. And I need you to do it. I'm an old man. I'm in prison. I'm over here. I'm in prison on behalf of Jesus. And I'm here from prison trying to ask you to think very carefully about your relationship to my child, Onesimus, my family. I became family to him, and now I have this great relationship with him. He's useful to me, just like he's useful to you. I'm going to send him home to you. But I want you to know that when I send him home, it's like I'm, I'm ripping out my own heart and sending it with this letter. You are receiving a piece of my heart, a piece of my family. And I knew that I could have kept him here. 
I could have kept him here. He could have been loving and kind and wonderful to me the way that he has been to you. But I didn't want to do anything without you being in on it. So I'm looping you in. And you know what? Maybe this was all for the good. Maybe this separation between the two of you gave you some time to think about who Onesimus is to you. So I want you to receive him back. And I want you to think very carefully about who he is to you. I want you to receive him back into your home, not as a slave, but as a brother. Because I know that I am your brother, and he's my brother. So who is he to you, Philemon? How much more should he be a brother to you in your own household? A brother in Jesus Christ, in this home, this church that you lead, followers of Jesus so if you really consider me part of your family, if you really are in community with me in the gospel, then you are going to welcome Onesimus like you're welcoming me. You are going to treat him like you would treat me. If he's harmed you in any way or if he owes you anything, you know what, I'll pay his debt. All right? I will pay it back to you. I, Paul, I am writing this with my own hand. I, Paul, will pay this back to you. I promise. We don't need to worry about the fact that you owe me your life. So, yeah, just go ahead and do that. That favor for me, you know, on behalf of Jesus. And it'll give me encouragement. It'll be so refreshing to start anew in this relationship. And I'm writing this to you, and you know what? I, I feel so confident that you're, you are going to do the right thing. I know that, you know what, you're going to do even more than that. You're going to do everything that I'm telling you, and you're going to surprise me at how much more bold you are at really putting into action your faith. Oh, and just to let you know, I'm going to be dropping by as soon as I got out of prison. So I'll see what it is you decide. I hope to be re released soon from prison because I know that you're praying for me. I know that you want me back in community. And I'll see what you've decided to do. Epaphras says, hey. And you know what? Just to make sure everybody's in the loop here, I want you to say hey to all the other coworkers at your church. Mark, Aristarchus, Damus, Luke. May the grace of God be with all of you. Peace. So this is a pretty intense letter from a pretty intense dude. Paul is a bold, bold man. <laughs> I especially like when he's like, oh, I'll pay any debts. Don't forget that you owe me your life. But when he makes this appeal to Philemon, He's actually putting together a pretty clear argument over time. Paul would have had a problem with slavery in general, in part because there is a provision in Deuteronomic law, and Paul was like really big on the law, that he had been following all of his life before he became a Christian. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 to 16, it says that slaves who have escaped should not be returned to their owners. So Paul would have had a pretty lifelong commitment not to just like handing people back. I will read to you that exact uh, passage. So Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. Slaves who have escaped to you from their owners shall not be given back to them. They shall reside with you in your midst, in any place they choose, in any one of your towns, wherever they please, and you shall not oppress them. 
you got to wonder like how we got slavery so wrong in this country for so long while calling ourselves Christian when that was our text. But Paul would have been committed to that. Paul was also though in deep relationship with Philemon and we know that there is a possibility, given our understanding of Roman law, that Onesimus wasn't actually trying to flee forever. He may have been trying to get a mediator. So what we understand here is that Paul is not eager to send Onesimus back into a bad situation. We also know that, again, there's a big risk to this relationship. Philemon is an important leader in the church. He's well-resourced. Paul wants to keep him on his good side. They, they need a good relationship. And we know that slavery was foundational to the economy, to the very things that made Phil so rich. And so we actually have some tension here because Paul is starting to challenge the very basic principles of the Roman economy to a leader who benefited from that greatly. So he starts out, and he basically says from the beginning, hey, it's me and Timothy. And I, I literally can't say that without singing Missy Elliott in my head. <laughs> Who's got the keys to the Jeep? Vroom. And he goes, it's me and Timothy, and I want to say hey to you. I also want to say hey to Abphia. I also want to say hey to Archippus. I also want to say to you know what, your whole damn church. Phil, we're going to have this conversation out in the open. This is not going to be a private letter. So Paul's coming in hot because that's how he does. But he's basically saying, this is a conversation we need to have as a Christian community. I know this technically is about like your property, but that's not how this is going to go down. This is not a personal matter. This is not a private matter. This is a matter of Christian community. So he brings everyone into this public conversation. And then, <laughs> then he starts laying out his theological argument. He says, I pray that the partnership in the faith might become effective by understanding all that is good among us in Christ. Uh, the NRA, that's the partnership, partnership, that's in the CEB. Um, I've mentioned before, I think good translations should be read alongside each other. Um, two good ones are the CEB, the Common English Bible. That's what I'm reading from up here. Um, and, and also the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, that's the one that Cameron read for us today during the reading. The NRSV calls it sharing, the sharing of the faith. But what you need to know is that either one of those translations is coming from a Greek word, koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A, koinonia. And what koinonia means is what is common communion, fellowship, sharing. There's not really a good direct word here. Koinonia is so unique and powerful that it actually shows up in a lot of Christian communities that are going to try and uh, teach you a little Greek. Koinonia is a common word that you will learn because it's so special. When I think of koinonia, what is held in common, what is shared, I think of what I've been taught, which is largely about community and fellowship and relationship and intimacy. And that's absolutely true. Koinonia is about closeness. It's about creating a new sense of family that is, that is chosen. 
Uh, it is about treating one another with a sharing and an intimacy. But it also has material implications. The thing that I think of when I think of koinonia is I think of Acts 2.44. Now Acts chapter 2 is Pentecost. It's the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But it's also when we get that passage about how the early church was radical and radically different. And how they gave to those in need. They held everything in common. Koinonia. And this is where we get the passages that socialists and radical leftists will point to saying, hey, this is a totally different kind of economy. And in Rome, the household economy was the basis for the whole big thing, right? So you had um, all of these metaphors about fathers and sons and brothers and sisters and, and this um, lineage, the way things would be distributed. But the household economy reflected the larger economy. And because of that, we have all of these amazing early Christian understandings of the household in a totally radically different way that reflect then the economy of the kingdom. Because the economy, the household has been turned on its head. It's been made into koinonia, a sharing where all things are held in common by multiple households that join together as one communion. So when... <clears throat> When Paul starts out by saying, I hope this partnership, I hope this sharing, I hope this koinonia where we all hold things in common because we are equals and all members of the same household, I hope that idea actually starts to bear fruit in your life. I hope it becomes effective. I hope that you take action on it because you truly understand what the gospel has in store for us. It is a powerful and directed statement to open up this short, short letter. So then after reminding Phil that he is in communion, in that sharing, in that equality, in that hierarchy demolishing community of koinonia with all believers, he makes his request. And he flexes a little bit to do it because he's Paul. So he says, I know that I could tell you what to do because I'm your mentor and you trust me and I'm your direct line to Jesus essentially. But I'm going to remind you of what fellowship in Jesus Christ means. It means that this man in front of me is my brother. It means that we are family to one another. It means that we are in koinonia together. And I know that I'm in koinonia with you. I know you consider me a brother. So if you consider me a brother, you have to consider Onesimus a brother. And what does that mean for your whole institution of slavery? It means it's bullshit. It means it's garbage. It means this is a human institution that defies the household and therefore kingdom economy of God's love. May the grace of God be with you. Paul has asked for Phil to step up and actually live out his faith. He says, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you. But that's only because I have confidence that when you do receive him, you will receive him as who he truly is, a brother, a sibling, family to you. And family have rights. Families share things in common. And this idea of receiving one another as brothers and sisters, this habit then that developed across the history of the Christian church of calling one another brother, sister, sibling. This is something called fictive kinship. It's, it's creating chosen family. This is the way that Jesus was queer first. 
This is the way that we choose one another and we create families that are godly and holy, not because of social expectations or blood relationships, but because treating one another as family and choosing one another as family is a holy and good thing to do. It may be fictive, fictional, chosen, but that kinship where we become kin to one another is real. And that's why some people, when they're talking about the kingdom of God, will drop that G and talk about it as the kingdom of God, where we are all kin to one another. We are all family. So Philemon has a legal right to punish Onesimus, probably imprison him. But now Paul is saying, your rights as a Roman citizen, your rights as a slave owner don't matter. You chose to leave that economy, that world, that hierarchy, that power structure behind. If you're really following Jesus, you're following Jesus into a kinship with Onesimus. You have to revisit all of those relationships over which you wield power and reevaluate them in light of koinonia. And this is so upsetting to to social order. Like, this is so upsetting to, like, the Roman way of life. Now, then we get to this bit where Paul's like, and you know what, whatever. If he owes you something, I'll pay it. Don't forget that you owe me your life. Don't forget that I brought you into Jesus. Don't forget that Jesus actually died for you. Don't forget that we all owe on this debt. Don't think that you're better off than Onesimus just because he got into some financial debt and you were born wealthy. And this is one thing I really do love about Paul because he is very much going always to this well of like, we're all sinners, we're all sinners, we're all sinners. And I know that that's been um, used in some really toxic ways in a lot of our lives in faith because we've been told that we individually are sinners. But the way that I read Paul, Paul is not trying to tell you that you are a sinner. Paul is trying to tell you that we are sinners. And that that actually puts us all on equal footing. It's kind of freeing because it means that like, you don't have to hide and pretend that you've never done any wrong in your life. In fact, it just puts you on the same plane as the rest of us. Paul says... We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says that in Romans. And that makes us equal before God. That's part of the nature of this household, that the only one above any of us is God. And God chooses to come down to be with us. God chooses to submit to the cross. And so we know how God feels about hierarchy. God doesn't lord it over us. God comes to be with us. So all of us are in this together. And Paul's concern here is with reconciliation, all people being in right relationship with one another because the cost of our sin is already paid in Jesus. That debt that Onesimus theoretically has because of the Roman Empire, it's paid. And so it's absurd that he would then have to pay for it more and more by enslavement when he truly is a brother, a loved one. <clears throat> and so, as we see consistently with some of Paul's other letters, this master-slave relationship, it doesn't exist. It only exists out there in the Roman hierarchy. But in reality, they are brothers, which means that that, that power dynamic is wrong. 
It's a, a misrepresentation. It is a way of the world that is broken and incorrect. We see in Colossians 3.11 that, that Paul goes through this list, neither Greek nor Jewish, neither circumcised nor uncircumcised, which was a really big deal back then, neither slave nor free. We see it again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. These distinctions that Paul has, they're not just identity. And Paul's not saying, oh, our identity is washed away. They're power dynamics. Paul is saying that these power hierarchies established by the social order are false, are lies. And that the true relationship is dictated by that family, that koinonia, that God has called us to. Then Paul does some more flexing and says, you know, I know you'll do what I'm asking of you and even more. Um, and just in case, I'm going to come visit. And we're going to find out. By the way, make sure that this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and this guy sees this letter too. I want them in on the conversation for sure. And so there we have Philemon. Now, as I read this, I see Paul saying slavery is evil. Slavery is uh, a delusion of the social order. And it is an abuse of, of power that is unearned because we are all sinners. But it's true that Paul isn't actually coming on the whole for the institution of slavery. And it's also true that this text was used to normalize slavery and to assume that Paul was sending Onesimus back, uh, potentially even against his will, saying that it is good to send enslaved people back to the people who have enslaved them. And so I want to read something um, that, that feels really important. And I'm reading this from uh, a commentary called The Subversive Gospel, a New Testament commentary of liberation by Tom Hanks, not that Tom Hanks. Uh, this is a great companion to the New Testament if you're looking for um, just a way to, to get into it with just a couple of pages on each book um, to read a little differently. But... Uh, Hanks writes, In light of the newer reading of the letter, we may profitably consider the tragic history of its misinterpretation, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, when Philemon came to be the favorite book of the defenders of cruel racist slavery in the British Empire and in the southern United States. This history shows how easily we impose our cultural and ideological prejudices to turn the Bible into an instrument of torture and violence instead of a proclamation of liberation, justice, and love. This is one of the reasons that we need, we need to be reading Scripture in community and we need to be reading Scripture led by voices from the margins because while it made sense that slave-owning, racist uh, interpreters of that text would read this and be like, oh yeah, he's sending the slave back. That's what you should do for me. I doubt any enslaved person would ever interpret this letter that way. And so we need to rely on one another to show us where our biases are reinforcing empire, are co-opting radical texts for evil. 
But we can also critique Paul here and say, you should have come for the entire institution of slavery. We should have come out more, more explicitly. This shouldn't be so ambivalent. And I think that there are some people who make different assessments about why that is. There's one that's like, oh yeah, slavery was really different. It's like, mm, weak. There's another that says, listen, you've got to understand these 350 words in relationship to the other letters where Paul is saying there is neither slave nor free. There is neither slave nor free. Like this slave master hierarchy is, is not real except as a metaphor of our relationship to God. Like human power dynamics um, should never have that relationship. But there are other letters that are attributed to Paul that are probably not written by Paul that are a lot hairier that reinforce a lot of very troubling social dynamics. And so if you pair some of those letters that are written not by Paul, but claimed to be by Paul, that reinforce the very, um, very culturally relevant social order, organized, uh, patriarchal, and power-dominating uh, household order, which you can definitely find in, in scriptures that made its way into the Bible, but were not written by Paul, if those are your other texts, then yeah, it would make sense. It would make sense that you would see Paul reinforcing empire there. And that's where we get into these debates about scholarship. But I think the most important one to understand why Paul is attacking slavery in this personal way and in the institution of the church, rather than saying um, we need to go and abolish slavery in our broad culture, is because Paul really thought that Jesus was coming back like in five minutes. Paul believed, or at least we gather Paul believed according to the letters that we think he wrote, that Jesus was coming back in person in a really profound way, either in his lifetime or in the next generation or so. And so Paul is, Paul's long game looks really different. He's thinking, oh, we need to be prepared for the kingdom, which is coming immediately. And like, there's no, there's no way within the span of a couple of decades here that we're going to abolish slavery in the Roman Empire. But what we can do is in Christian fellowship, we can start to live correctly. We can challenge one another not to participate in these systems of evil. Because Jesus is coming back shortly and we want to be living like the kingdom way now. And we want to be prepared for what Jesus is, is bringing into being. What we understand now, or what I understand, is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom, but Jesus is bringing that kingdom in and through us, which is why not only are we called to right relationship within Christian fellowship, within koinonia, but we are called to challenge those systems of the world because it's been more than a generation or two since Paul wrote this letter. And so many people have lived in lives of slavery and torture and violence that it is on us to topple those systems. But I believe that that text that Paul wrote gives us a basis of doing that. That we can do that with boldness. That we can do that with even some of that cocky zeal that he has. That says, I know this is the way of the kingdom. And if you really believe in any of this, you're going to put your money where your mouth is. And I'll come check on you. So we can be emboldened by this passage. We can push back against the assumptions of empire when empire reads this text. 
by making sure that we are reading it from the margins, from our own marginalized identities and also leaning hard on the marginalized identities of others so that we are always seeing the text rightly and always in conversation with one another and looking at those power relationships and seeing the difference between the power dynamics of the kingdom and the power dynamics of empire. But as with Paul, I trust that we will do the things that God is calling us to and even more. Jesus said that we would do what he did and more. And so we have to know that we are empowered to do things, radical things, to change the world. Will you pray with me? Dear Jesus, it is hard to look back on a couple hundred words from a couple thousand years ago and know how that calls us to change the world here and now. But you have given us tools, histories, commentaries, communities, prayer, the wisdom and knowledge of our own lived experience. May we rely on those things and be called to right relationship. May we take the belief we have in your kingdom and the ways of liberation and actually put that into action. May we re-examine the relationships of power in our own life. See where we are buying into falsehoods and hierarchies. May we demolish those. And may we live in koinonia, calling one another family in your name. Amen.